Hello everybody, it's Martin Kinnan here, just introducing a, another series of short discussions that we've been having with colleagues from around the world on the topic of transmission-based precautions. We hope you've enjoyed the discussions, we've certainly enjoyed talking to people about this important topic, and possibly trying to tease out what may be a way going forward. Martin Keenan here again, and uh, I have another special guest talking about contact droplet and airborne transmission. And I'm delighted to say that Professor Hilary Humphreys from the Royal College of Surgeons from Ireland has agreed to have a word with me about this subject. And so thank you very much for this, Hilary. Uh, you're very welcome, Martin. Okay, so let's get straight into it. Do you think the current contact droplet and airborne transmission terminology and the way we subsequently plan and deliver infection prevention and control precautions needs to change? I think it does. And maybe it should have changed before the pandemic, but the pandemic was the ultimate paradigm and such an effective and transmissible infection that I think we've all learned a lot. And certainly one of the things as an educator, I think we sometimes overdo is to compartmentalize, is to segregate things into nicely digestible chunks for students so that they can understand. And therefore we tend to, you know, we tend to maybe have them too clear cut. Whereas, you know, biology and science is really a continuum. So the idea that there'd be a virus that it would only be transmitted by droplet and another the virus that might be transmitted by droplet uh, and aerosol or aerosol only is actually against what we, we know to be the case in biology. So I think we do have to look at it again, although I wouldn't underestimate you know the challenges in doing that. Mm, okay. I mean, so what do you think might work? How might we communicate it? Yeah, I think we have to look at the epidemiology of the infections, first of all, if, particularly if we're talking about viral infections. And clearly, we've learned a lot from uh, SARS-CoV-2. And, and it's clear to me at any rate that in, in some circumstances, it is transmitted by the aerosol route, although most of the time it may be droplet and hence the effectiveness of, of many of the preventive measures. But but certainly there are obviously circumstances, procedures, and there may be circumstances in which you have heavy shedders who are likely to transmit by the aerosol as well as the droplet route. So I think we have to look at the epidemiology. Then I think we have to look at, you know, who we're trying to protect and the environment in which we're trying to protect them and whether or not, you know, we don't have the opportunity to isolate patients. I, I saw a very interesting paper about te- of about 10 or 12 years ago from Hong Kong on influenza, which showed patterns of aerosol transmission simply because of the airflows and where other patients were uh, situated and the absence of any obstruction of that airflow going right down to the end of war. So patients actually got infection more than um, two meters away because of the circumstances. So I think, you know, those are the kind of things we we need to look at. Yeah, we have to build them in, don't we? Because at the moment it's it falls within two meters, it's droplet, Beyond that, it's airborne, and and it really right. does depend on so many other factors, like right. what's the source, what's the setting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that could get very complicated. Though, and and, and you, know. you know, another point to put into that, of course, and we learned this from uh, from 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 COVID nineteen, but also previously is, you know, non-invasive ventilation is another sort of risk factor. A lot of these patients now are, you know, managed on, on wards in different parts of the ward and, of course, outside hospitals as well. So, you know, that's it's also changes in care I think we need to we need to allow for. And our setting as well, because sometimes we can actually make modifications to our hospital, which Correct. might suit one infection, but actually mess things Correct. up for others, like putting Correct. putting bay doors on for norovirus, and then yeah. suddenly you find out you've actually got no circulating air in your bay. Correct. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the, the things that struck me is if you if you think about it, certainly uh, in Ireland, I suspect it's the UK, is we, we have too many patients in too small a space anyway. And we've, we've always known mm. that even before uh, SARS-CoV-2 in the sense that we could see transmission of MRSA, but it was sort of small numbers. It was a steady trickle over time. But, you know, what I think COVID did was, was show um, in, a, in a very dramatic way how we're really uh, on thin ice in, in many of the ways in which we have so many patients in such a small space 
space, never mind the issues mm. of understaffing and so on. Yeah. Is this a conversation you think we ha- should have amongst ourselves, or there are there other experts who should come into this discussion and uh, maybe contribute in a way that possibly they haven't in the past? Well, I, 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 you know, I've been very interested in some of the discussions on, you know, from aerobiologists and scientists who study patterns of airflow and even engineers. And, uh, you know, some I saw some very interesting guidelines from a European group on uh, artificial ventilation of ventilated facilities. And a lot of it was common sense. But, you know, I, I think there's there's more to it than just infection prevention and control practitioners, as well as obviously patients and members of the public. But I think the public are also, you know, in this space as well. You know, certainly in Ireland, um, students before the recent exams were looking for spacing in the schools and HEPA filters in their schools. So, you know, it's very much, this is now the time to make the case for better facilities for patients in hospitals and elsewhere and to involve, uh, you know, much wider kind of, if you like, uh, faculty of individuals than maybe what might have been the case before the pandemic. Yeah, well, you know, they say never waste a crisis and this may be the opportunity because, you know, we we I don't think we learned the lessons from previous episode shall we say as much because maybe they came to an end a lot more quickly um but i think this possibly is an opportunity and any final points you want to make yeah i mean i think it's interesting if you look at the the original sars outbreak in the noughties i mean um hong kong and other countries in the far east did learn because they had a real problem i mean we we really escaped that and so we we mm. knew that it was a, a quite infectious but we because we escaped we said well it's probably never going to happen again we don't need to take learn the lessons from it but for example um hong kong had a major capital program of building single rooms for their publicly funded hospitals and so that helped them in the initial phase the subsequent phase i think there were other issues that came into play so i think we've got to learn the lessons now before the next one but also ongoing to protect patients from other infections that may not necessarily be form part of a pandemic mm-hmm. i mean there will be a next one won't there it was 10 years between mers and, and sars and mers eight years between mers and sars two yeah i reckon we've only got about five years left to really <laughs> to crack yeah. on and we need to use that time well and learn the lessons Okay. Well, thank you very much, Hilary. Really appreciate your comments as ever. And uh, hopefully there'll be some good, fruitful discussions going forward once the dust is settled a little bit. You're more than welcome, Martin. Uh, so Martin Keenan here at the HIST meeting. Uh, I managed to grab Dr. David Enoch, who's a consultant microbiologist at Addenbrooke's in Cambridge, where they've been quite forward thinking in from my point of view anyway in dealing with the pandemic so same question I've given to everybody else David is the current droplet airborne fit for purpose transmission and if not why not and how could we change it do you think so I think um, my problem is this at the moment it seems to be very binary it's either airborne or droplet and to my mind you know so they're either big particles or small particles and to my mind it's more of a spectrum where where there's a range of, 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 of size of particles and, and so I think that it's it's it's, it's difficult to to describe. Yeah, it's difficult to do that, really. I think. So, so I, I I think you'll have to edit this. I, I I think that really what we should be doing in terms of protecting our staff is that we should do everything that we can. And so I don't see why we shouldn't use FFP3 where you suspect a, a, a viral infection or you've got a confirmed viral infection. So, so that's what I think you should do, especially when resources aren't limited. At the start of the pandemic, when resources were severely limited, I think absolutely going down the surgical mask was fine if that's all you've got. Um, but now I think there's no excuse, and I think we probably should be moving towards FFP3 just, just to protect your staff, really. OK, so you think it's not necessarily fit for purpose. Or, you know, how could we change it then? How, you know, what is the, going to be the way forward? Because at the moment we are contact, droplet, airborne. You know, what, what might work, do you think? 
Well, I guess we probably need more research to try and find out of the type that they did in Cambridge, yeah. that the acad- our academic colleagues did in Cambridge to try and find out exactly what the risk is yeah. and then decide. Um, I think in terms of contact precautions, um, there was a very interesting uh, discussion yesterday in one of the sessions. Um, but I, I think my fundamental problem again is that a lot of the evidence against contact precautions is in the US where it's all side rooms yeah. anyway, yeah. which obviously isn't fit for purpose in the UK unfortunately at the moment yeah. and it's not going to be in my lifetime um, <laughs> And you're still young <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> as I was told by my children oh. <laughs> um, so, so I think that, that I think there probably needs to be clear definitions of what contact precautions actually are and yeah. what do we mean and I think that that's part of the education that we as infection control practitioners okay. need to be saying to, to, to the ward staff this is contact precautions you know whether it's apron and gloves and then watching them how they actually do it and, yeah. and what the, you know whether it's taking gloves off taking aprons off when they need to and, and washing the hands because yeah. actually you know if, if you're washing your hands properly it's probably well, yeah that, that's part of the problem really yeah yeah um, I mean do you think do you perceive see a situation where you might have either contact or air is there actually a space for droplet going forward Probably not. I'm no. not sure there is really. No. no, I think that if you've got a suspicion of a viral, uh, you know, a respiratory infection, then why not just go for the FFP3? Yeah, I guess. Okay. I, I mean, th- there's problems there in terms of fit testing and practical problems. Yes. Sort of logistical problems. And where you put the patient as well. Yeah. Yeah. But I think ultimately, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> thanks very much for your time, David. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Hello everybody, it's Martin Kiernan here and I've managed to grab hold of Professor Jenny Wilson at the ACCI meeting in Romania and we're going to be asking her the same questions that we've been asking everybody else. So and thanks very much for doing this, Jenny. Really appreciate it's it. a pleasure. So uh, do you think the current contact droplet airborne transmission terminology and the way we subsequently plan and deliver IPC precautions needs to change? Yes. Okay, that's easy. Uh, why? No. <laughs> Okay, so I'll start with droplet and aerosol. So it's quite clear that you can't really distinguish between patients with infections that purely disseminate with droplets and purely disseminate with aerosols. And it makes much more sense to have one category for respiratory precautions. And those patients clearly need a single room wherever possible. Clearly, if you're cohorting, you try and keep people with the same infection in the same area. And then selection of protective clothing according to the risk, which is determined largely by the infectivity of the patient and the nature of the exposure. So if they're having AGPs, then you you would want to use N95 masks. Um, You might want to incorporate, if they're coughing, extensively then you might want to include N95s with that I think you know there's room for for debate about at what point you introduce N95 but patients with respiratory infections in respiratory precautions so that's one category to be honest I'd dispense with any other categories contact precautions what's it for we're not really sure we put gloves and PP on before we go in the room. But actually contact with the patient and their environment, we can eliminate that contamination by hand hygiene. And thinking that by getting people to put gloves on, you minimise the risk would be fine 
if we knew that they use gloves properly. <laughs> but they don't. <laughs> you know, I've never heard you talk about this. No, subject. it's funny that. <laughs> <laughs> now, what I would say is, you see, I'm old enough to go back to the 1990s and Jackson and Lynch and body substance isolation. Mm-hmm. And so I can't claim to be the inventor of this because their view was... Well, you probably can because they're probably not around anymore. So I don't know. I suspect they are. Yeah. Um, so they proposed that body substance isolation meant that the risk of transmission of the infection was focused on the body substances, so the body fluids. And therefore, you target the PPE for contact with those body fluids. That really meant that standard precautions was adequate to control all infections apart from those with respiratory infections, which you need to put in a single room and think about um, mask protection. Um, And then assess the placement of people for which you may be concerned that body fluid will disseminate in the environment. So people with perhaps C. diff, if they have extensive uncontrolled management of, of diarrhea, then you might want to put those people in a single room because you need to contain the contamination of the environment. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, patient placement is already featured in standard precautions as cited by Siegel. So it's really still part of standard precautions. We just need to be much more uh, much more careful or, 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 or be more specific about situations that would merit putting somebody in a single room and the reason why we're doing that, which is to contain the body fluid, rather than saying, well, we'll put somebody in a single room because that means that we take these precautions with them when actually what we're doing is not preventing transmission of infection and it's increasing the risk that that patient ends up, if it's the case of a multi-drug resistant organism, which is predominantly where we're using contact precautions, it increases the risk that that multi-drug organism that they're colonised by is going to get into their invasive devices mm. because staff do not change their gloves yeah. while they're in that room. Yeah. So respiratory, are you, are you saying just one blanket for I would respiratory have, or more subcategories within respiratory? I, I don't know. I think one category for respiratory would work. It would save the issue because, you know, if you look at the difference between droplet and airborne, really the only difference is saying... Well, you need to wear a mask to go in the room. With droplet, we've always said, well, you don't really need to wear a mask unless you're close to the patient. But we've sort of learned through COVID that that's not a useful distinction. Mm. And actually, we've happily moved to wearing masks routinely for caring for patients who have COVID or in situations where we think that we've got a high endemic level of COVID. So actually, it makes sense to make that one airborne category where, as a minimum, you wear a fluid-resistant surgical mask. And in specific situations where the risk of aerosols is high, you you might need to wear an N95. Which, to be fair, Asia switched to many years ago because of their experiences with SARS. Absolutely. Uh, and because they had the problem and we yeah. didn't. But they Absolutely. switched. And so they've been doing this for some time, really. And it's really interesting that because part of the problem was our emotional response to wearing glo- uh, masks. So... I mean, I'm sure you've done this as well. You would visit Asia and you'd see lots of people wearing masks. And we'd think as British people, that's a bit weird. Why are they wearing a mask? But actually now we've been exposed to the pandemic. Actually, it makes a whole lot more sense. And I think think our staff 
and as pra- infection control practitioners, I think we would more readily accept the idea mm. that if somebody's got a respiratory infection, it's sensible to wear a mask. That is the route by which your healthcare staff will acquire that infection. Yeah. It may only be a cold or an adenovirus, but actually we don't want healthcare workers to get sick. We want to minimise the risk that they acquire infection because that just means we've got fewer staff. And so it makes sense to take that step in precautions yeah. to say, if they've got a respiratory infection, I just pop a mask on because that's the important precaution. Gloves, not necessary. Yeah. Apron, not really necessary unless you're going to have very close contact with the patient, their body fluid. Yeah. But a mask for respiratory precautions. Okay. And then for every other patient, standard precautions with decisions to be made about prioritising the single room according to the extent to which the infectious body fluid is likely to contaminate the environment. Okay, wonderful. Thanks very much. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Hello everybody, it's Martin Kiernan here again and this time I'm still at the remaining conference in Yash and I managed to grab hold of Professor Michael Borge from the University of Malta and Malta Day Hospital. Um, no, Michael, for a long time. And I'm going to ask you the same question I've been asking everybody else, which is, do you think the contact droplet and aerosol transmission paradigm we currently work to needs to change? I mean, it's a bit ironic that we always emphasise that we need to do risk assessments and evaluate each situation in its own merit. Yet, we tend to use precautions or protocol, precautions protocols very dogmatically especially in relation to the droplet versus uh, aerosol mm-hmm. um, uh, transmission precautions. When we know, for example, that there is, there is a, a paradigm, a, a, a variation in the droplet size even when one coughs. So in a nutshell, um, no, I don't think we should. Uh, we, we are um, uh, doing things correctly and I think we need to Reevaluate the, the these precautions that we have been using, as I said, dogmatically for so long. Okay, why, why do you think that then? Why do you, why do you think we need? I to I mean, change? for example, you know, so COVID is a classic example. Mm. I mean, we've always, uh, or at least initially, it was all droplet, except aerosol generating procedures. Yet we know when you have coughing, the size of the droplets varies significantly. So you do not have only large droplets, but you have small droplets. So if you have a room where you have uh, cohorting of four, for example, COVID patients who are symptomatic, who are coughing, then of course, as I see it, you know, the risk of there being significant aerosols in the room, Mm. um, even though they're not being subjected to aerosol generating procedures, um, is, is significant, especially if this is compounded by a, 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 an old build where maybe the ventilation is not as effective um, as, as one would like it to be. Okay. So what would you replace it with then? That's a $64,000 question. I think we should emphasise, rather than as we are doing at the moment, so uh, infection uh, situation in which sense, I mean, aerosol-generating procedure or not, I think we should look at the patient himself or herself and, and what the, the actual risk is. So if you have a patient who is coughing profusely 
as I said, even though it's not an aerosol-generated procedure, it's, it's uh, I think, a situation where you should um, consider um, airborne precautions. And in fact, um, in my institution at Mater Dei, you know, in, for symptomatic patients, uh, for symptomatic COVID patients, um, we've, from the start of the, of the pandemic, we have basically adopted airborne precautions mm-hmm. using N95 masks, um, uh, in some instances even um, having uh, the, the better ventilated rooms uh, mm-hmm. for these patients. And if I must be honest, our, our results have been quite encouraging. We've had very little um, staff acquisition and we've looked for it and, and, and it wasn't really there. Okay, so you think really just contact and air is the potential yeah, way to go? I mean, again, as I said, I think w- the, the, the emphasis has to be on the risk assessment. Yeah. Which, if I must be honest, you know, and you know, I'm very much um, uh, focused on human behavior. It's, it's yeah. not easy because staff um, uh, very often struggle there. I think we can help them with some simple algorithms, you know, so COVID patient um, coughing uh, significantly airborne precautions. Okay. COVID patients COVID patient asymptomatic or mild cough, then use, use droplet precautions. I think that would be a fair and reasonable balance for the situation. Okay. Well, thanks very much for your time. Always a pleasure to see you, Michael. I'm here. Okay. Thank you, Mark. Bye-bye. Well, hello, everybody. It's Martin Kiernan here and um, asking the same questions we've been asking everybody else. And I'm delighted to say that uh, I've been able to get hold of Dr. John Otto. Now, John is uh, the, one of the Joint Directors of Infection Prevention Control at an enormous organisation in the UK called Guys and St Thomas's NHS Trust. Uh, but John's a long background in the IPC and has been a, a guest on our show before and uh, normally rates extremely highly, so no pressure there, John. So let's go down <laughs> the route of the first question then. Do you think the current contact droplet airborne transmission terminology and the way we plan to deliver IPC precautions needs to change? Come back to that. So, I mean, first of all, this this whole area of discussion and debate has been, I think for me, one of the hardest, if not the hardest aspects of the entire pandemic. The amount of vitriol and the, shall we say, unfortunate behaviours that I've seen and to a small degree have been directed at me, but I've seen directed at other colleagues has been really out of line. Um, so I, I'm really keen to participate in this um, podcast to, to prompt a hopefully really healthy and balanced debate about this issue mm-hmm. um, because nobody should be attacked for their no. views, even if you disagree with them. Yeah. Um, we, can, we know we can all be right or wrong. And it's yeah. often, often our decisions are based on our interpretation of what literature is around and what, and our, what we've been taught and... Sometimes that takes a while to change, and sometimes there is no need to change. So, okay. So, can we go back to the question then? That's the politicians' yes, answer out of the way. Right. So, the, the answer is um, yes, I do think that that whole droplet contact aerosol um, paradigm, I can't believe it is a paradigm. It's a word no, I really no. hate. <laughs> I think that whole thing needs to change because I don't think it's a good fit with the evidence fundamentally. So if you look at what the evidence about the emission of infectious particles on respiratory droplets says, it doesn't say you've got a hard cutoff point with drastically different 
behaviors of those particles. What we see is a continuum of particles that are emitted from very, very small to very, very big. And some behaviors are attached to the big particles and some to the smaller ones. Um, but uh, it, it's not as hard and fast as would inform that droplet aerosol approach to uh, transmission-based precautions. Okay. And I think the new... What is the next question? What should the... Yeah, well, I mean, what could replace it then? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. Every new paradigm I've ever heard of turns out not to be a new paradigm. So there needs to be a new paradigm word for paradigm, I think. But anyway, what, what, what could yeah. replace it, John? Where, where do you think we should go with this thing? You, what, you mean the new words paradigm? <laughs> You're stalling now. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I've, got a, I've got a suggestion that we don't talk about droplet aerosol or particle at all, that we expunge those from our language altogether in this context, and we come up with a totally new terminology. Because if, at the moment we start talking about aerosol and droplet, barriers go up and people start to polarise mentally. So I think we should have a, some kind of different approach. And my um, suggestion is that we talk about blobs. So we have so when we when we emit respiratory particles, let's talk about blob size. And hopefully okay. that might add a bit of comedy to the debate that I think is much needed in this whole space. So you yeah. have little blobs that probably go further and stay in the air for longer and big blobs that don't go as far and, and come down a bit quicker. But the big blobs can can become smaller as they evaporate and then start to behave as the smaller blobs. So it turns well, out that Noel Edmonds was ahead of the curve years ago then with Mr. Blobby. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Blobby. It's yeah. a while since I've uh, in any, yeah. any kind of... Yeah. So uh, what one part of the debate that I think might be lost slightly is the, is the idea of the the number of infectious particles that are being carried. So I think that could be an important detail. You could have very small droplets that do go a very long way, mm -hmm. but they may well be carrying a very small number of infectious droplets. And then we get into the realm of infectious dose. And that's really important when you come to which kind of mask you wear, mm -hmm. which is what, you know, the, what people are really up in arms about in some quarters. Um, and I think people have forgotten that it's a, it's a risk reduction exercise. And yes, the, the more filtration you have on the mask, the more infectious droplets you'll take out. But even the, the, a lower level of filtration could be enough practically if you have a very small number of virus particles in the air. Mm. Okay. Right. So blobs are the way forward. John, thank you very much. Yeah. I really appreciate but, it. And, I, and I, I really get your comments about the polarization and the, and the way the debate has developed in a not particularly healthy way. And somehow we're all going to have to come back together and have sensible and rational discussions because then we're going to have to sell whatever we come up with to those who actually got to implement it. Exactly. Can I just make one more point? Absolutely. So the way that I think this is best applied is rather than having droplet and airborne transmission-based precautions as have been traditionally applied, merge those together into a single respiratory pathway. Mm -hmm. And in that respiratory pathway, you have different levels of precautions depending on the organism and the setting. Because there are some viruses, let's stick to viruses, 
although there are some bacteria involved as well, that really do fill a room almost like a Brownian motion with a gas mm. and, and spread incredibly well through the air. And there's others that can be in the air, can be transmitted by air, but, it, but there's other transmission routes that are at play. So I think if we have a single respiratory pathway, we move away from the unhelpful droplet aerosol approach, and we can be uh, a little bit nuanced in the way that we apply our precautions um, based on pathogen and setting. Okay. I think that's nice and clear, actually, John, and I very much like that idea myself. Uh, so I th I'm really grateful for you sparing these few minutes to have a chat. And uh, there'll be a few of these talks going out over the next couple of weeks, and then we'll, the three of us are going to have a bit of a sum up. But uh, it should provoke hopefully some good discussions at some of the big upcoming meetings like IPS and the ASIPSI meeting in Australia. So anyway, always good to see you. Thank you so much for joining me, John. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Martin. Again, everybody, it's Martin Kiernan here, and we've got our last guest speaker of our series on transmission. And I'm delighted to say uh, Pierre Parnay, who's a French doctor who specialises in public health, has been able to join us. Pierre's head of the Nouvelle Aquitaine Healthcare Associated Infection Control Centre, but he's also the current president of SF2H, which is the French Society for Hospital Hygiene. So thanks very much, uh, Pierre, for sparing me a few minutes. Really appreciate it. Nice to be there, Martin. So... Um, what we've been asking people is about transmission paradigms and is our current contact droplet and airborne paradigm fit for purpose and do you, or do you think it should change and if you think it should change what could it change to do you think it's always easier not to change when you change things in infection control it takes 10 20 15 years before all the people are doing the new things so uh, in my mind, I was I think that I would be get I would get retired before seeing that. So uh, <laughs> it's easier not to change the things. But at the opposite, if you look at the COVID crisis, it's obvious that we are not able to control the transmission of the virus in healthcare setting. So our approach of the strategy was not correct. Uh, the second things we have been really challenged by healthcare professional about which protections are the best and whether we were protecting really themselves. So um, I think it's another point in uh, favor of changing. And the third thing is that we knew that the dichotomy be between droplets and airborne was not was a little bit artificial. It was not the full science, but we have learned a lot about that. Now we know that we have a turbulent cloud with different kind of phase. And the word droplets is in a way misleading because when we speak about droplets now, it, it was about the big size droplet, but you have also small range droplets. So to my vision, we need to change at this time. Otherwise, uh, it was useless to face the COVID crisis. Mm. I mean, is that a general view in France, do you think? Because it seems to be... A I of, think uh, the French similar. Society for Hospital Hygiene, we are starting to uh, refurbish your guidelines. So we are discussing around that. So the global vision is that a change is, is interesting in the... How you spell it, uh, it's not you get rid of droplet, maybe. Do you speak of aerosol, close-range close aerosol versus uh, long-distance aerosol? It's not easy. At, after that, what you are doing with the new concepts and uh, how much it could impact the guidelines and how much people will follow new guidelines better than the previous one. And that's not consensual at the time. To my opinion, um, 
we first we should do that by steps so we need to have a global vision of uh, building hospitals and environmental control you need to have a single room uh, for isolation you need to have quality of ventilations intrasex infection control when you're designing an hospital it will help you after that you should understand what is source control it's always the better to make uh, to put a mask to the patients and the correct one, not the FFP2 or 3, but the surgical mask only in order the patient to breathe, but it's not acquired by all the healthcare professionals. And after that, you have to enlarge a little bit standard precaution. We have done that in France, including uh, uh, respiratory hygiene, cough etiquette, but maybe it was not as good as that. And with that, uh, you will wear sometimes surgical mask and ice protection because you receive some fluids at some moment. So if you already do that, you will in a better position to control. And after that, you could add some additional precaution, the respiratory one. So at the time we have surgical mask and respirator, maybe in the future we have differencing, better surgical mask, more fitting more people or more, more breathable FFP2 or FFP3, it's possible. Uh, in France, we are starting from ground zero. We are only performing for respirator the fit check before. We don't do the fit test. Where I, the SF, SF2H is starting to implement fit test, but it's just the beginning. So we have people love the N95 mask like because they are very breathable. Uh, it's not real respirator. So I think what we, and in the future, we have a position infection control. Some say that healthcare professionals can't uh, think when, are, when they are performing care, and other will help them to think a little bit. So to my opinion, there will be situation where, okay, surgical mask is enough, do that. Situation where, like tuberculosis, respirator is mandatory, and a lot of in-between situation. And uh, instead of saying, uh, doing that or that, to my opinion, an healthcare professional will have surgical mask at disposal, also a respirator, Preferably tested with a fit test, and could be able to select the most appropriate for him in the situation with the patient, with the compliance of the patient. So, I think that uh, it's just not only a dichotomy; it's a much wider change that we need to improve things. And part of the problem is, of course, that we're trying to apply something like a national guideline in a variety of settings, from hospitals that were built a hundred years ago to new hospitals, which maybe have completely different ventilation systems, and and every patient is different as well. But I mean, having things available for a healthcare worker, it's going to be difficult to get them to do a good risk assessment, isn't it? Do you think they will just default to the higher level of protection, or or is your feeling that they they actually will take on board that sort of level of information and make the right choice? I think as far as we don't let them selecting things, we don't know whether they will make right choice or appropriate one. We have not the feeling they are in the perfect position to do that, but they are in the situation. It's, it's not a problem if they select a respirator instead of surgical mask, it's if they feel more protected, it's the one is appropriate to them. If it's a real respirator, they will see that it's harder to breathe. And maybe in the surgical uh, room, they will not be uh, eager to, to wear it all the time but it's the idea uh, in an European room you have also surgical smoke you need to control them at production it's, it's the best yeah. to my opinion uh, we need healthcare professional to be a little bit aware of the situation and to 
uh, appreciate the situation, have the opportunity to choose their protection. Otherwise, they will always be uh, angry at us and say we don't, we will, we not, uh, we're not protecting enough. It's and thing and thing like that. So, it's not easy because uh, the opposite, everyone is doing everything uh, in all the situations. But, to my opinion, if you have the the basis, a large basis with the design, the source control, and the, the real standard precaution with have protections uh, when it's needed, it's already a huge step forward. After that, the mask is only one piece. During COVID crisis, we have spoken too much about masks. It was the only preoccupation and everything else was not a problem. Not we're protecting, protecting eyes, not having hand hygiene and things like that. So to my opinion, you, we should enlarge the debate and the vision and not focus only on masks. Okay. Well, thank you very much. That's nice and clear. Really appreciate you spending the time to have a chat and uh, I'll see you next week in Bournemouth, hopefully, as long as you make yeah, it. My pleasure, Martin. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Well, that's it for all of the interviews that we've managed to get with people. The next episode of Infection Control Matters will be Phil, Brett and I trying to make some sense of it and having a bit of a chat about it ourselves. And we're possibly also going to try and grab hold of some air scientists as well and people who understand physics a lot better than we do. So we look forward to catching on the next episode. Bye for now.